As you're coming in, by way of announcement, we, um, our church camp out is coming up August 3rd, 4th, and 5th down at Metzler Park, and our theme this year is Welcomed in Christ, Gospel Hospitality. And a lot of that is, is, is simply based on the idea that evangelism um, is that God uses uh, hospitality as a means to evangelism. And there's a book that's been recently written on this topic, and it's by Rosaria Butterfield, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. So I'd encourage you to read this book in the coming weeks and months leading up to the church camp out. And for the next, oh, I have about 15, oh, 10 copies, I think. For the next several weeks, I'll give two away for Sunday. But if you wait, you'll not have enough time to read it. So Dale gets a copy, and Amber gets a copy. Thank you. But you can also buy your own. (laughs) And also by way of announcement, is Joel Harrison here? Not yet. I think registration is opening tomorrow for the camp out. That was more of a dog bark than a woo. (laughs) I think it is. When Joel comes back in, I'll ask him, but I'm almost certain we're going to open registration tomorrow for the camp out. For the month of May, we've been taking somewhat of a detour from our normal diet of preaching. And um, this was somewhat unannounced and somewhat unplanned. But God knows... And all his plans always come to pass. And last week we had a very wonderful and encouraging word from our brother Chris Taylor. Thank you, brother, for that. (laughs) You dog barked that one too. Thank you for that timely, uplifting, very pastoral word. It was very encouraging to my family and our kids. And I know that many were ministered to. So thank you, brother. I'm grateful. And next week, we have the the privilege to hear from our brother, James White. Yes, yes. Uh, He's uh, on vacation in Redmond this weekend, so pray for him as he prepares in the coming week. And so in my prayer and planning, in the last couple weeks, I decided to not go back to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but instead to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. And, okay, I get it now. I've never done this. This is not going to be good. This printed two-sided. Okay. Huh. I don't know about this. Uh, for the last two weeks, um, I had the, the privilege and I want to thank you as a congregation for this privilege and opportunity to, to finish the last two courses in my doctoral program. Um, you don't have to call me that yet because it's going to take like two years to write a dissertation. Um, but as I was sitting there in these classes with these other brothers, um, this thought hit me in relation to this text here. And the thought is, is that 
none of this, none of these degrees, none of this education ultimately matters in the end. And I was struck with the audacity of the man that decided to call a master's degree a master of divinity. It's how arrogant that potentially sounds. Because it is God and God alone who masters us. He's not one to be consumed and to be mastered by men. And this text here, this this text where Paul addresses the nature of human wisdom and party spirit and his own calling as an apostle, very likely one of the smartest men of the ancient world. And yet he considers his calling, he considers his life, he considers his speech to be that of weakness and humility. First Corinthians is, is really a, a remarkable letter. We know from Acts that Paul planted this church and that he stayed there about 18 months. And we know that he wrote this letter, probably five years or so, scholars would suggest, after he planted the church. So he's planted the church and he, he writes this letter to the church about five years later. And in this letter, it's remarkable the scope and the breadth of things that he addresses. In chapter one, he addresses the party spirit that's already happened in the church. Different people attributing themselves to different leaders. In chapters two through four, he addresses the notion of intelligence and wisdom. In chapters five and six, he talks about the authority of the church and he talks about church discipline and he addresses some pretty striking cases where a man is actually having an affair with his stepmother. He talks about these Christians that are suing each other and taking each other to court. In chapter seven, he talks about family life and he talks about the nature of children with Christians and believing parents and he talks about divorce In chapters 8 and 9, he talks about different ethnicities and how they're to relate to each other. In chapters 10 and 11, he talks about divisions that are happening in the Lord's Supper, where the rich are hanging out with the rich and the poor are hanging out with the poor. In part of chapter 11, he talks about gender distinctions in the church, gender roles in the church. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about the nature of giftedness within the church and and how some are gifted in different ways and some use their gifts to elevate themselves above other people and how some want to get up and talk all the time. And he says, all things must be done in an orderly way. It's remarkable the amount of things that he discusses in this one letter. But he starts all this. He starts all of this with a remarkable premise. Before addressing all these practical matters in the church, he starts by saying this. I knew nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He preached for 18 months. And he can say at the end of that preaching ministry that I knew nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. So let's look at this passage here. And the text breaks up for us in three easy to see markers, which will be the three points. So verses 18 through 25, we'll call the gospel message. Verses 26 through 31, we'll call the gospel recipients. 
and verses, chapter two, verses one through five, we'll call the gospel ministers. The gospel message, recipients, and ministers. And young people, if you're looking for a key word this morning, I'm gonna make it hard on you, and I'm gonna give you three key words. It's getting too easy out there. Wisdom, foolish, and cross. So write them down. Wisdom, foolish, and cross. And start making tally marks. And any derivative of each of those words counts. So wise, wisdom, fool, foolish, foolishness, cross, crossies. <laughs> Just cross. Read with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power excuse me, of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this word that you've given us. We're grateful for the Bible, God. We're grateful for the scriptures, Lord, that you've given us You've given us these words. We pray, 
Holy Spirit, that you would make them come alive to us. We pray that we would be built up, O Lord. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, the gospel message. The wisdom of God and the nature of the Christian life is radically paradoxical in nature. It's radically paradoxical in nature. We're sorrowful, yet we're rejoicing. We're poor, yet we're rich. We're genuine, Paul says, yet regarded as imposters. We're known, and yet we're regarded as unknown. We're dying, and yet we live on. We're beaten, and yet not killed. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing, yet we possess all things. 2 Corinthians 12.8, Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus began his ministry by stating these paradoxes that we refer to as the beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so on, and so on. Jesus will tell us, whoever wishes to find his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. It's paradoxical. It's upside down. It's contrary to human wisdom. The New Testament will tell us things like this. We see unseen things. We conquer by yielding. We find rest under a yoke. We reign by serving. We are made great by becoming small. We are exalted when we are humble. We become wise by becoming fools for Christ's sake. We become free by becoming bondservants. We gain strength when we are weak. We triumph through defeat. We live by dying. We find victory by glorying in our infirmities. It's all over the Bible. And the greatest of all of these paradoxes is that the wisdom of God is most powerfully displayed in a shameful cross. The cross was the pinnacle of an image for shame. 
you see what we have up there? We have a cross up there. Do you know what that would be like in the first century? It would be like if a woman were to walk in here today and she were to have the mushroom clouds of Hiroshima as earrings on her ears. It would be like if instead of back there it's saying celebrate and displaying the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, there was a a fresco of, of the concentration camp in Auschwitz. That's what it would be like in the first century mind. It's utterly shameful. And this is what Paul says, and this is what God says. In verse 19, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, God does not simply say, I'm going to set it, one of these aside. He doesn't say, let's, let's see one to be shown as greater than the other. He doesn't say, let's have a, a contest of sorts and, and weigh the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. He doesn't say, like, let's put each in a balance and see which comes out on top. Or he doesn't say, let's hold a trial of sorts and see if the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world comes out on top. No, 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 no. He says that the wisdom of, dis- of, of God will destroy the wisdom of the world. It'll just obliterate it. There's no contest here. There's no put it in the scales, put it in the balance. Oh, you could choose one, you could choose another. No. He says it destroys it. The bloody cross of Jesus Christ destroys the wisdom of the world. At the center of Paul's preaching is this bloody, criminal, shame-covered, torturing, scandalous cross of Jesus Christ. It is the heart of his message. The Lord of the universe was insulted. Jesus Christ was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was scorned. He was derided. He was parodied. He was caricatured. He was satirized. And he was hung up like a piece of meat. And then late in the afternoon, they poked him to see if he was done or not. And this, verse 18 says, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He doesn't give us different multiple categories here. He says there's two kinds of people. He says there's either those that are, that are perishing, and this whole business of Christianity and a shameful Roman cross is foolishness. Or he says... There's those that are being saved. And to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice, he will say it is the wisdom of God at one point. But he doesn't say immediately, for those that are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. He says, for those that are being saved, it is the power of God. Because the message of the gospel, the message of the cross is not just good advice. It's not just good wisdom for us. It's power. It's converting power. It's life-changing power. And it happens through the preaching of this message that seems like foolishness to the world. But it brings life to those who are being saved. So I must, as a preacher, give you this message right now. Is this message, this gospel message, is the notion of the shameful Roman bloody cross, is it just shameful to you? 
Is it just, just, just folly to you? Is it just scornful and, oh, I don't really want to deal with it? Why did God have to do it that way? Or is it life and power and hope? If it is, you are in the being saved category. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to ask people if they're Christians. And if they said, I'm trying, preacher, he'd say they don't get it. They don't get it. And the illustration that I've heard Lloyd-Jones give before, he said, you're either in the room or you're not in the room. If you ask somebody, are you in the room, and they say, I'm trying, then they're not in the room. <laughs> they would say, then, 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 then take that step forward and go in the room. Because a Christian is either one who is being saved, and this message has become life and hope and beautiful to you, or you're perishing. For us who is being saved is the power of God. Indeed, it is the glory of God. Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And he'll say a few verses down in 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ, in that bloody cross is the pinnacle display of the glory of God. The glory of God is his worth. It's the essence of his being. It's everything that he is. It's his worth. It's his weightiness. And we see the weightiness of God, the worth of God, the magnitude of who God is. We see that in its pinnacle form, in its supreme form, in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling us here something remarkable. He's telling us that when we behold that face, when we gaze upon that face, when you look at that Roman cross and you see the man Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows lifted high for your sake, that's how you change. Beholding his glory, beholding his worth in giving himself for the creatures that he made, you behold the, 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 the pinnacle of the glory of God. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He says, all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of everything God does is included in this one phrase, the glory of God. He says, everything shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory that come from God are something of God that are refunded back to him again and again and again. So that this whole affair, this whole thing is of God and in God and to God. God is in the beginning, he's in the middle, and he's at the end. The glory of God 
shines most clearly and is fully seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is most clearly seen on a bloody cross at Calvary when Jesus Christ bled and died. The infinite worth, the infinite beauty, the infinite holiness, the infinite majesty of God is on the cross. And here's why. Here's why. Here's why the power of God, the wisdom of God, absolutely just smites and destroys all the wisdom of this world. Because he who was highest became lowest. And we can see it. We can see this picture of beauty. And we can see this this picture of loveliness in the smallest of acts among human beings. We see it as, as these mothers get up during the service and they take their children to the bathroom. We see it as they condescend to change their diapers. We see this act of highness coming low for the sake of another and we can see it as beautiful. We see someone serving another person and we can see it as beautiful. We can see a husband sacrificially loving his wife and we can see the beauty of it. We can see a wife graciously and willfully and of her own accord decide to submit to the leadership of a man of her own accord and we can see it as beautiful. How much more? When we talk about the infinite God, To come low for our sake. Again, Jonathan Edwards. In the man Jesus Christ, we see infinite highness and infinite condescension. Infinite justice and infinite grace. Infinite glory and lowest of humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. The deepest reverence towards his father, yet absolute equality with him. infinite worthiness of every good thing, and yet in him the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In him we see an exceeding spirit of obedience, but one who has supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty over everything, and perfect resignation to the will of his Father. completely self-sufficient and yet an utter trust and reliance on God. So what does this mean for us? If transformation comes as we behold him, because that's what that word means, The word behold in 2 Corinthians 3.18 means to behold and it means to radiate back. It means to treasure something and by treasuring it, it's radiating itself back. It means that we behold the face of Jesus Christ like a mirror. So that as we gaze upon it, we actually begin to radiate it. As we gaze upon it, we actually begin to radiate it. It means 
that we must be consumed with this message, this message that is foolishness, that is moronic to those that are perishing. It means that we must gaze upon Jesus Christ. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. It means that we must fight for joy in waking up in the morning and reading the scriptures and delighting in God's word for us. It means that we must treasure and value the Lord's day in corporate gathering together, believing that as we hear the word of God preached and believing that as we take of the elements together and believing that as we sing corporately together and believing that as we read the scriptures and we pray corporately that God is using all those means so that we would behold Jesus Christ all the more. It means that Sunday morning corporate gathered worship is more important than a football game or a soccer game. It means that we have an opportunity once a week that God has ordained one day a week that we would gather corporately together and spend a few hours together solely focused on him and his glory in a unique kind of way. Something happens when you sit under the preached word of God that doesn't happen when you're by yourself. God anoints the preaching of his word. God instills faith as his word goes forth from this foolish, weak man and the other foolish and weak men that stand in this pulpit This text says that God is doing something through the weakness of preaching. I don't understand why. I don't understand that it works. It's God's ordained means though. So you should fight with every fiber in your body to sit under the preached word of God, to gather with God's people, to wake up in the morning and read the scriptures yourself. Because that's how you begin to change. That's how the glory of God is radiated from your own life. Amen. That's point one. <laughs> you guys know how I preach. It's a funnel. It'll get, it'll, 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 the points get slower. Point two, the gospel recipients. The gospel recipients. <laughs> the display at Windsor Castle yesterday was, was, was really beautiful to watch. We saw all the pomp and circumstance of royalty. We saw those that are of noble birth. Every single one of us, as far as I can tell, will be forgotten just a few years after we die. I don't know my great-grandfather's name. It's written down somewhere. I'm sure I could look it up. Most of us will be forgotten because most of us are not of noble birth. Most of us don't meet the standards of, of excellence in our society. But God chose the weak and the foolish. He chose what is low. He chose even what is despised.
so that he might get all the glory. Consider your callings. Not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, in God's sovereign freedom, he chooses people in such a way to completely nullify human pride. And this, my friends, is absolute good news to us. Verse 27 says, but God chose. Verse 28 says, God chose. The second half of verse 27 says, God chose. This means that it is God's sovereign electing power in your life that has made you to be a Christian. It's not because you figured something out in a way that the people around you didn't. It's not because you were just a little bit smarter or a little bit more humble or have a little bit more insight. It's because God in his sovereign electing purposes simply chose to save you. As we read this morning, why did he choose the nation of Israel? It's not because they were the mightiest in the land. It's not because they were the greatest of the age. It's because God simply loved them and put his electing sovereign purposes upon them. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't rest upon you figuring it out a certain way. It is simply God's sovereign electing purposes in your life. I remember listening to R.C. Sproul teach on this because there is the objection that says, well, I don't know that I can believe in a God who elects some and doesn't others. And R.C. Sproul, who was a Christian teacher who passed away last year, in a very kind and gracious way, just simply kept putting the question back. So why do some choose and some don't? Why do some humble themselves and some don't? Why do some repent and some don't? Why did you receive the grace of God that was offered to you and others didn't? Why did you see it and they didn't? And as you push the question and push the question and push the question, the answer is either some, even if in the smallest infantizal form of hubris, of pride, or it rests solely on God. That's the only options. Oh, because I guess I saw it a little bit clearer than they did. Oh, I had the humility to humble myself under the right, my righteous hand of God. Oh, I, I had the intellectual power to see it in such a way. But this message of the cross, of this gospel, comes to you simply because God has set his sovereign electing purposes on you simply because he loves you simply because he loves you. And this isn't, this isn't just Paul here. Luke says it as he closes the book of Acts. Acts 28. It says, From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about the Lord Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
To some, the message of the gospel is the power of God. To some, it is foolishness. Jesus said it. John 6, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but I will raise them up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus will say later in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, he says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand the hope that you rest in this morning rests on God's electing saving purposes in your life if you are his he won't let you be snatched from his fold What should this do to us, <laughs> practically, to apply it now? What, is that, what should that do to us as gospel recipients? So we've heard the message. We're now talking about us as recipients of this message. What should it do to us? It should make us radically humble and gracious people. It should make us not be afraid of the people around us. It should give us a kind of exhale disposition towards life. It means that we can learn things from other people. It means that we can learn things from unbelievers. It means that we can learn things about parenting. It means that we can learn things about marriage even. A common grace that has been given by God to all. It means that we cannot take ourselves too seriously and realize that it is solely God's electing, saving purposes in our lives that he graciously came to us. We were the weak and foolish ones. I don't have to prove myself. <laughs> the text tells me. I finished reading Eric Metaxas' biography on Luther a couple weeks ago. And one of the points of scholarship that's addressed in examining the life of Martin Luther is that what you see in his early Augustinian monk days in the early 1500s is this dude that is just totally uptight. He's scared to death of the wrath of God that's impending upon him. He, he, he spends hours and hours and hours in confession. And then later in his life, he's kind of this like, uh, <laughs> he says a lot of crazy stuff, okay? He says a lot of things that if I said in this pulpit, you guys would probably fire me. <laughs> And the question is, was that, this is, from, this is from a worldly perspective, this is from those that aren't Christians that have studied the life of Luther, because they're seeing a dramatic difference between early Luther, late Luther. 
They don't understand that something remarkable happened around 1513 to 1517 as he was reading Romans and Galatians and the light bulb simply just went off like a firecracker in his mind. And he understood that the free grace of God was his by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's what made him different. Once he beheld the gospel and he held it deep down in his heart and he started to apply it to all aspects of his life, it gave him a new and profound kind of freedom in life. And the world doesn't understand it. The world doesn't understand it. Metaxas makes jokes about this because these, these historians try to understand Luther and they kind of wrap it up in the psychology of how his dad must have treated him and maybe his dad spanked him too much. And Metaxas points out, everybody's dad spanked him too much in the 15th century, okay? <laughs> That's just how it was. But it was the gospel. It was this message that's foolishness to those that are perishing. That made him to be a meek, gracious, at times humble, an exhaled approach to life. So that leads us to our last point, which I'll be brief. And this is the gospel ministers. And this is what struck me, I think, in, in, in the last few weeks. As I'm sitting in these classes and time to reflect and I'm reflecting on the congregation and reflecting on where we've been in the last weeks in the last months he says I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling and what struck me was to look at the way the means that God accomplishes his purposes. And it's God's ordained purposes that he accomplishes his work through weak ministers. And that's really hard to say. It's remarkable But it it follows to reason, doesn't it? That if the message is one of weakness, if the recipients themselves are called to weakness, it stands to reason that the ministers themselves must be weak. I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. My speech and my message were not plausible in words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power. So that, a purpose clause... Achina clause in the Greek, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God gave you, as a church, weak ministers on purpose so that your faith wouldn't rest in the elders or the deacons. He gave you weak ministers so that your faith would rest in the power of God. It means that we watch out for slick preachers who never mention these things, who never mention their own weakness, who see the cross as some kind of token. You remember what Paul's enemy said of him in 2 Corinthians, right? 
His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. This is how he described his own ministry in the text that Gloria read for me, that we have this treasure, this gospel, in earthen vessels or weak bodies to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For while we live, we're always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The infinite God becoming weak for our sake. To come to a weak people through the means of weak ministers. So that the surpassing power, so that our faith would not rest in ourselves, but would rest in the power of God. My friends, as we come through this season, as we continue to to learn from our mistakes as we continue to grow as a congregation, it is a right and a good place to be in to acknowledge our weakness. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. God uses the weak things in the world to shame the wise. God uses these pairing kinds of situations to remove the dross from our lives so that we would behold him all the more. And this is the hope of the gospel, that his loving, disciplining care for us is a sign of belonging. It's a sign that we belong to him. There's no wrath that remains for us, only the loving arms of a merciful kind Savior, who has one requirement for you to come to him, simply that you feel your need for him. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that everything is from you, it is for you, it is to you that we are recipients. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It confounds human wisdom. It destroys human wisdom. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Help us to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ all the more. And help us as a local church to embrace our weakness to embrace our shortcomings. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.